This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The war in Ukraine is already having huge impacts on the international order. European countries that have been warming to Russia are now alarmed about its military ambitions on the continent. That's why we've been able to build such a broad coalition for sanctions against Russia. Germany has announced its intention to rearm with an enormous fiscal investment in its military. It says it won't turn on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Sweden and Finland, which each have a decades-long tradition of official neutrality, are talking about joining NATO. Meanwhile, oil prices have soared, and as President Biden moves to ban oil imports from Russia, he also appears to be reevaluating the U.S. posture toward other oil-producing countries, including Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. A reordering of global energy markets is going to be necessary as we try to turn Russia, a major oil exporter, into a pariah state without tanking the global economy. And China, which has provided tacit backing to Russia, may be wondering if it's gotten more than it's bargained for. So how is all of that going to work out? And in what surprising corners of the world are we going to see reverberations from this war? To talk about that, I have Michael Singh here. He's Managing Director at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He also directs the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation on Great Power Competition in the Middle East. From 2005 to 2008, Michael served on President Bush's National Security Council. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being here. Hi, Josh. So first, I want to talk directly about Russia. A theory that I see a lot of people floating in the media about what our endgame is here uh, is that basically there's going to be discontent inside Russia with Putin waging this war of choice, with the combat deaths, with the economic pain that both the war and the economic sanctions about the war are going to cause. There have been these intimations that maybe Putin's gone a little bit crazy in COVID isolation and that basically there are people who would like to push him out and that this could end with regime change in Moscow. That strikes me as a pretty wishful approach, right? That's Can that be our plan A here? Well, I don't think it can be our plan A, Josh, because I think it's just so hard to know exactly what's going to transpire in Russia. Putin has shown a, a pretty firm grip on the country in the past. And of course, this is a dramatically new circumstance. But we've already seen a willingness on the part of Russian authorities to crack down on any signs of dissent. We've also seen, um, you remember that TV segment that Putin put out where he asked all of his senior leaders whether they supported this uh, invasion of Ukraine, and they all went down the line and dutifully said yes. So, so it seems as though there is this effort to make sure that the inner circle has blood on its hands as well. And so, you know, are they going to sort of push Putin aside when they themselves might be seen as culpable for what's happening so, so the, the reality is we don't know exactly what's going to happen inside Russia. And all signs right now are pointing to Putin having pretty firm control of the system there. That's not to say that tomorrow we, we won't be surprised by something. But I think you're right, Josh, that it can't be our plan A. It can't be what we rely upon to end this crisis. So what then does an endgame look like here? I'm trying to envision what it's like for this war to be over. Putin's still in power and some sort of equilibrium in Europe that we find reasonably acceptable. I mean, is, is there a negotiated solution to this that, that looks available on the table? Well, you know, normally what we'd say is, you know, you, you ramp up pressure, but at the same time, you look to create off-ramps. You look to leave a ladder for, for Putin or a leader in his situation to climb down um, so that they can have a face-saving way out of the dilemma they've created for themselves. And Putin has created a massive, massive dilemma for himself Uh, that I think he simply didn't anticipate or couldn't have anticipated. I think in this case, though, you know, Putin's aims have been so far reaching. Uh, Essentially, you know, he's talked about this, uh, quote unquote, denazification of Ukraine, uh, essentially replacing the leadership and trying its leaders for for supposed crimes that Putin has imagined. He's already seized eastern Ukraine. 
it's very difficult to see what an off-ramp from these sort of maximal aims would look like, because even if he were to withdraw his forces from the country, Russia is still holding Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Russia has, uh, by all accounts, committed uh, war crimes in Ukraine, which will demand some kind of accountability going forward. It would be very difficult for Ukrainians or the world to simply say, you know, if you withdraw, then, then all is forgiven. So it's difficult to see that off-ramp. And so I'm not sure that we can really think in terms of a quick end to the crisis. You know, it may be that Ukrainian forces plus Western pressure can sort of beat back uh, the Russian advance, can can stave off uh, the Russian military. But I don't know that that ends this crisis. I don't know, for example, that that loosens Russia's grip on eastern Ukraine, the Crimea, uh, or addresses some of what's already transpired in Ukraine. Because... As I've been watching some of the images coming in from this war, the the destruction in residential neighborhoods, to some extent is reminding me of Syria. Um, And we had this, you know, we had this sort of proxy conflict with Russia in Syria that has ended with the, or well, it hasn't ended, but that that where the the resolution essentially was, you know, a complete humanitarian disaster, destruction of entire cities. And us pulling back so that Russia basically gets its its place of, of influence there. It doesn't feel like that's an acceptable outcome on the European continent, but it, it, is, is that a direction that we could be heading? Well, it certainly seems to be the direction that Russia is heading in Ukraine, unfortunately. There are echoes of Syria in Ukraine, um, especially in Russian forces' indiscriminate shelling of cities, their disregard for the humanitarian consequences of their actions. You know, we see hospitals shelled, we see schools shelled, uh, we see apartment buildings uh, destroyed. Uh, we see similarities in terms of their cynical use of humanitarian corridors or, or ceasefires as means to sort of reposition their forces or even to draw out uh, Ukrainians and Ukrainian forces in a way that uh, makes them easier to target. I think the difference, uh, as as you alluded to, Josh, is that this this is not taking place in Syria. This is taking place in the heart of Europe. The Ukrainian military is much more capable uh, than any of the foes that Russia and Assad and Syria faced. Um, And of course, Russia itself has uh, made a much more significant commitment to Ukraine uh, and the Western response has been stronger. So it's it's like Syria in some respects, in some very chilling respects, but the stakes are much higher uh, on all sides. And so you wonder if, in fact, what we've seen in Syria, this kind of sort of stalemate where much of the world has really just turned away, frankly, if that's even possible in Ukraine um, uh, and understanding that that's not a good outcome in any event. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the broken ceasefires. We keep seeing these news stories about there's a ceasefire and then the Russians just break it and often you know, killing civilians in the process. How do you negotiate toward an off-ramp with a power that, that keeps lying like that? And I, I, I guess there's precedent for this, right? I mean, it's not that we trusted the Soviets and we were able to have certain kinds of negotiations with them. But what, is the, what does that look like if, if, we're, if Russia would be making certain commitments as part of any negotiated solution here? I don't, how, can we, how can we evaluate that any of those commitments can be relied on? I don't think you can rely on Russian commitments. I think you'd have to um, only relax the pressure on Russia, only offer concessions to Russia in response to Russian actions, um, not in response to Russian promises. And I think that's what uh, the ceasefires and the humanitarian corridors teach you, is that you really can't take Putin at his word on these things. You have to assume a sort of nefarious purpose uh, when the Russians are agreeing to these types of things. And so I think there will be a very heavy... Uh, desire very sort of um, a heavy bias on the part of the West and the part of Ukrainians 
to really only uh, offer concessions or compromises after Russia has taken whatever actions we need to see them take. I want to talk about some of the ways that this has been reordering U.S. relations in, in somewhat surprising places around the world, or at least in initially surprising. I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest global economic impacts from this war is the huge disruption to energy markets from the war and from the sanctions. Russia is a major oil exporter. And so we've seen a few of these moves from the Biden administration in recent days that, that appear to be efforts to soften relations with certain other oil-producing countries in hopes that we might be able to get them exporting more oil, uh, which would blunt the, the effect on global oil markets from uh, the disruption of, of, of Russian exports. Uh, we sent a, a delegation to, to Venezuela. Uh, there's news that Biden might personally visit Saudi Arabia later this year. There are these ongoing efforts to restart the Iran deal, um, which would allow Iran to, to resume certain oil exports. Are these smart moves? Is this basically, you know, we have to prioritize Russia's a much bigger problem than we realized. And therefore, some of these other countries that we, you know, we have various beefs with, we basically need to ease off on those? Well, I think it's a fascinating series of developments. And, and the most fascinating thing for a foreign policy practitioner is that it shows you how almost anything on foreign policy is easier than domestic policy. Because the question that so many people in the United States are asking is, well, why don't we increase our own production? Um, but I think it's it's clear that that is harder uh, in many respects for the White House to to do than than to make any moves on the foreign policy front. So yes, it's clear that we've we've reached a pain point where foreign policy options that might have been off the table before are, are now under active consideration, and that includes obviously the outreach to Maduro, it includes the outreach uh, to the Saudis, which I think frankly should have happened a long time ago. And it certainly adds an impetus uh, to the Iran negotiations. And it's fascinating uh, and troubling that we have seen Russia try to throw a spanner into the works uh, in Vienna and, and disrupt the Iran negotiations uh, with its own gambit. But I think, you know, one question, Josh, is how effective will any of these steps be? It's not clear, for example, that Venezuela could easily bring a significant amount of oil onto the market. And so you're sort of uh, have to, having to balance both kind of perhaps a, a low efficacy of such moves along with whatever sort of moral odium uh, you're taking on by doing it. Saudi Arabia, again, it's not clear what the spare production capacity is, uh, although I think that's a higher sort of um, higher priority or higher sort of uh, probability target in terms of getting cooperation. Um, with Iran, you know, it'll be fascinating to see if, in fact, Russia is able to prevent uh, what had seemed to be a deal sort of right on the cusp of being finalized from, from actually coming through. And it'll be fascinating to see if Iran decides to carry Russia's water uh, in those negotiations, maybe against its own national interests. Yeah, that's, that's been remarkable to me because the, the Iranians have a huge economic impetus to, to try to restart this deal. It's, it would be a, a real boon to their economy to be able to resume the, those oil exports. The Russians have basically said that they, because of the new economic sanctions on Russia, they're looking for some sort of carve out in the Iran deal. And my, what I gather is that the question is, does that relate specifically to certain relationships economically that Russia has with Iran? Or does that create a, a, a hole in the sanctions that you can drive a truck through using that Iranian gap as basically a way for, for Russia to maintain certain global trade that it otherwise couldn't. How does that work in those negotiations? Because I assume that, you know, why, why does Iran care whether Russia gets its way on those sanctions? What is Russia's leverage if the U.S. and Iran want to resume this deal? Why would Russia be able to stop it? 
Well, there's there's a whole whole set of issues that arise here, Josh. And you're right. I mean, Iran's economic impetus is actually growing stronger by the day because as oil prices increase, uh, well, that's revenue that Iran is not getting, uh, but could be getting if sanctions are relieved. What Russia has requested is essentially a massive carve out in Russia's sanctions, because if Russia could access the global economy via Iran, via a, you know an Iranian economy which has suddenly had sanctions relieved, then perhaps it could, for example, sell the gold that its central bank has stored. It could perhaps sell some of the other currencies that the central bank has stored, which right now are essentially just sitting there um, ineffectively inside Russian vaults. Um, so it would be an enormous um, concession to give to the Russians. Now, it isn't clear, frankly, that Russia really has any mechanism to actually stop the Iran deal in its tracks. So, Josh, Russia is a member of the P5 plus one, uh, which is that group of countries uh, negotiating with Iran over its nuclear program, consisting of the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. That's the US, UK, France, Russia and China, as well as Germany. The P5 plus one um, doesn't require unanimity. Uh, the, the joint commission set up under the Iran nuclear deal, which is the body that makes these decisions, doesn't require unanimity. It's, it's not clear that Russia has a big role to play in implementing a nuclear deal. Maybe it, for example, would be um, under whatever text is being negotiated. Of course, we don't know the details of that yet. Maybe it would be taking some nuclear material, material from Iran to sort of put into storage you know, that could go to a different country instead of Russia, for example, might require some additional right. negotiation. But it's not as though Russia can really exercise a veto in Vienna. Now, as you think about it, what Russia could potentially do, um, and it's uh, ironic that we're even talking about this, is it could actually exercise the snapback provision of the nuclear deal. This is what President Trump tried to exercise, what he threatened to exercise. The, the deal, as it's written, gives really any member a permanent member of the Security Council, the ability to um, tear the deal apart. Basically, you declare that Iran is in violation of its of, of its agreements in the deal, and therefore the, the sanctions are supposed to go back into place. Is that is that a fair description of the snapback? That is exactly right. Uh, and it would be a remarkable okay. step for the Russians to take, given their criticism of the United States for contemplating that sort of step in the past. And, and given that Really, they wouldn't be pointing to any um, Iranian violation of the deal. They'd be sort of just unhappy they weren't getting concessions themselves. But so the, the snapback provision, what forces us to abide by that? If Russia says the sanctions go back on what I, I mean, I realize the agreement says that then the sanctions go back on. But if we don't do that, what is the consequence? Look, if the U.S. and Iran said, hey, you know what? We like this deal anyway. Let's just abide by it. Then, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, American sanctions waivers aren't subject to Russian or U.N. Security Council approval. Uh, Iranian nuclear activity is is a matter is a sovereign matter. I mean, they can they can make whatever steps they, they want to make on their nuclear program. What would happen is Resolution 2231, which is the U.N. Security Council resolution that enshrines the JCPOA, would be repealed. And all those previous U.N. Security Council resolutions which impose sanctions on Iran would be reinstated. Um, but I think you're right. The reality is that if Russia were seen as doing it for cynical reasons, um, which, of course, they would be, there, there is no other reason here, then I think the United States, Iran, other states wouldn't really abide by that decision. So I think what it really comes down to, Josh, again, is that question of Iranian-Russian solidarity. Look, in reality, these are two countries that don't really like each other that much. Um, there's a lot of historical baggage that Russia has in Iran, yet they do have sort of this... Um, 
you know, marriage of convenience, as it were. Neither one likes the United States. Both would like to see the United States sort of taken down a peg and would like to see the U.S.-led international order maybe disassembled. And so Iran is going to have to decide what's more important, getting its sanctions relief or solidarity um, with the likes of, of Russia. And this is where, frankly, the Chinese vote might come in uh, significantly. If, if Iran goes to China and says, what do you think we should do? What will China say? I think that's that's a question. We don't know. This, this whole situation raises a lot of questions for China. Why is China providing tacit backing to Russia here? Is it just, again, trying to take the U.S. down a peg? Because it seems like the, the global ramifications for this don't look really so good for China, right? I mean, they don't benefit from higher oil prices. They don't abstractly benefit from greater turmoil in the world. So what is bringing China together with Russia here? And is there anything that's happened over the last few weeks that might fray that relationship? I think this is a terrible situation for China, uh, personally, uh, for, for lots of different reasons. You know, China tries to style itself as a great power on the world stage, but a different kind of great power, a great power which is from the developing world, which has its own history of exploitation by imperialist states. And Russia's action in Ukraine has really brought those two roles uh, into conflict and into tension in a way that I think Beijing probably doesn't like very much. It's also a situation where you have this strong Russia-China partnership that was touted just at the Olympics, just weeks before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but one in which Russia is very much the junior partner if you look at the economic and military might of the two states. And now that junior partner is essentially leading China down a path of confrontation with the world. And China has to make a decision, how much confrontation is it really willing to tolerate over Russia's frankly, rash and sort of ill-planned and ill-considered actions in Ukraine. And I think it's fascinating to see that while, you know, look, the Chinese um, are certainly not breaking with Russia. Chinese media is full of condemnations of NATO and the United States for provoking this conflict. China is not exactly wholeheartedly supporting Russia either. And I think that if you look at the details, Chinese banks, for example, uh, have refused to do business uh, with Russian banks and with Russian entities. If you look at the details, it looks like, frankly, China is quite reluctant to sort of full-throatedly take Russia's side here. And I think that's ultimately because they're simply not interested in bearing any significant cause for the sake of Russia. Maybe they still want to show Russian-Chinese solidarity um, so that the U.S. isn't emboldened or, or the sort of U.S. and Europeans don't feel as though they could do this to China in the future. Um, but clearly, um, Beijing is not exactly enjoying this experience. I mean, one thing that I think a lot of U.S. observers are, are looking at with China here is China has its own ambitions uh, to retake territory that it sees as, as integral to its country. What are the Chinese learning about what it would be like if they tried to invade Taiwan based on what's happened with Russia and Ukraine? Well, what I hope they're learning is that it would be much harder than perhaps they initially thought. You know, there is this interesting debate amongst U.S. foreign policy analysts, especially on the right, uh, frankly. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when, when President Biden was deploying additional forces to Europe, only 6,000 additional forces, but, but still, you had the sort of Asia first crowd saying, look, this is a mistake. This is a distraction from the real problem, which is uh, in Asia. Uh, and this is going to essentially embolden the Chinese if they see us distracted with this other problem in Europe. I, I think that what we're seeing is that that analysis was wrong. Uh, it was misguided. Because what I think we're showing China 
uh, in standing up to Russia is that we have both the will and the capability to stand up to a nuclear armed rival uh, that wants to take uh, pieces of other states' territory or wants to absorb other states entirely. China might have doubted that before. They might have said, look, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. is a war-weary country. The Europeans can't get their act together and they're not willing to use hard power or, frankly, even financial power in a significant way. And so at the end of the day, um, the only obstacle to us taking Taiwan is the Taiwanese themselves, which is not an insignificant obstacle by any means. Now I think they have to look at that situation differently. Um, And I think they'll, they'll, they'll have to factor in the U.S. and Europe in ways that perhaps they didn't before. And I think they'll have to regard our will uh, to stand up to them as higher, perhaps, than they did before. You mentioned whether the Chinese would decide that they didn't want to tolerate certain actions from their junior partner in Russia. What, what would it mean if China decided they didn't want to tolerate what Russia was doing? Did they? What is their level of influence to get Russia to stop this military campaign or to otherwise change its behavior? Well, look, China buys a lot of Russian oil. Um, China may be seen by Russia as now its sort of economic partner of last resort. Russia has been cut off from so much of the world with very few significant exceptions. China is clearly the most significant exception. You know, Putin can um, try to ignore Western economic pressure, even though, frankly, even that is is really quite difficult. I mean, the sanctions on Russia's central bank, uh, the sanctions uh, against now Russia's energy industry, which are starting to bubble up, these are significant sanctions. If China were to somehow join in that economic pressure, even passively, uh, you know, maybe not by sort of uh, actively joining some sort of U.S.-led coalition against Russia, that's not going to happen. But if China were to simply say, look, we've got bigger fish to fry, we're not going to carry your water uh, in the global economy because we want smooth economic relations with Europe, which we have much greater trade with than we have with you, Moscow. Uh, We want, frankly, not to provoke a conflict with the United States over this. I think that would put Russia in a much more dire situation economically and would shorten the time horizon for Putin uh, to sort of do whatever he wants to do in Ukraine uh, and hope to then start to weather the economic problems that follow. To the extent that Russia has some remaining ability to sell oil abroad to China or elsewhere, it's benefiting from this big spike in oil prices. And so that that brings us back to these relationships with other countries like Saudi Arabia and the extent to which we can influence how much oil they're pumping. But the Saudis, of course, also benefit from these high oil prices. Why would Saudi Arabia cooperate with us to try to increase production and push down the global oil price? What is it that we can offer them? that would bring them around to our side on that? Well, I think there's two things to say on this, Josh. Number one, you know, and it's somewhat counterintuitive, is that while, of course, the Saudis um, benefit financially from high oil prices, they don't necessarily always want oil prices to be very high because they do worry that in the long run, uh, excessively high oil prices encourage switching. They encourage the development of, you know, sort of green energy or sort of alternative energy um, uh, research and innovation. Um, And so what they don't want is to sort of get to that place in the market where uh, demand becomes more elastic, right, where suddenly people start thinking about switching away from oil uh, or being encouraged to switch away from oil. And that is, I think, drawing in part from the experience they had during the Arab oil boycott back in the 1970s, where that helped spur uh, fuel efficiency, for example, in cars. So there's that. They don't actually want oil prices to be so onerous that it sort of rebounds on them somehow, that there's a backlash against them. Second, I think there are things that Saudi Arabia wants from the United States, um, both sort of easy things like a visit from President Biden or a reciprocal visit 
from Mohammed bin Salman to the United States, things which are easy to give logistically, maybe not easy politically uh, for the White House, um, as well as things, for example, like uh, military sales from the United States or civil nuclear cooperation from the United States. And so there probably is some kind of laundry list that Riyadh has uh, stored away in a drawer for when this sort of situation arises. Um, and so there may be something that they get in exchange for being willing to cooperate with the United States uh, in the oil market. And so you mentioned the, the political cost to doing those things. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a bad actor. MBS is a bad actor. They, you know, they cut up Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate in, in Istanbul. And so the sort of increased frostiness of our relationship with Saudi Arabia was was really sort of an, an idealistic one, right? It's about human rights um, and that, you know, basically you can't behave like this. So, I mean, obviously our, our foreign policy is not always idealistic. Is the cost of softening with them, is it just that, you know, we get our hands dirty? Does that have real impacts on the behavior of the repressiveness or the abusiveness of the Saudi government or other governments? What's Because, uh, I mean, it, cer- it certainly doesn't feel good to bring MBS here for a state visit. Well, that's right. And I, and I think there is a political cost on the left for President Biden to sort of engage in a rapprochement with Mohammed bin Salman specifically because of some of that past behavior. Just on the left? I think, I think, frankly, mostly on the left. I, I don't think there's a cost so much on the right. Um, it's not that Saudi Arabia is beloved on the right, but I think the cost comes mainly on on the left. Look, Saudi Arabia, I think, has been very complicated under Mohammed bin Salman because you've had both the outrages, like the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but you've also had, for example, a move away from promoting extremism around the world, and and so you've gotten sort of both the good and the bad. But when you when you stand back. Uh, and you look at the Middle East, you look at global energy markets, there's a clear interest that the United States has in um, cooperation with Saudi Arabia, even at the times where, frankly, um, we don't love them and where we have significant issues with them, which is most of the time, uh, because our human rights record has been poor for a long time. Um, And so I think that it's a case where the White House needs to make a practical decision, saying, look, we have interests in the Middle East, we have global energy interests, the Saudis want cooperation with the United States. You know, this is not Iran, a country which is actively trying to oppose the United States. And so let's try to carve out uh, that cooperation um, while, you know, trying to find ways to keep the pressure on on things like human rights. But I think the fact of the matter is that we will probably actually have more influence over Saudi behavior when they feel as though um, there is something to be gained by dealing with us and in their relationship with us than when um, they are turning away towards Russia and China. In in recent years, there's been some cooperation between the OPEC oil producing countries and and Russia, which is which is not a member of OPEC, to try to limit the the amount of global oil production with sometimes with success and sometimes they've not been able to to reach agreement. What sort of relationship has been built between Saudi Arabia and and Russia there? And how does this I mean, obviously, I guess you pointed at one way that this might rupture the relationship, which is that they now now the price is too high. That essentially now they're too successful at pushing up the the, the global oil price. But what is if, if they're turning toward us on this issue? Presumably they're tr- turning away from Russia. A number of the Gulf states have been pretty cross pressured here, right? Well, that's that's right. I, I think that um, look at the end of the day, uh, you've seen Saudi Arabia hedge its bets uh, on the world stage, and that's largely because of their questions about American reliability. Um, and so you have some element of Saudi Russian cooperation, which is just practical. In response to rising energy production in the United States, you did see OPEC and the non-OPEC, non-American producers sort of band together to try to more effectively control oil prices. 
but that didn't necessarily suggest a deeper, um, warmer relationship. Um, now we've seen Saudi Arabia actually get closer to both Russia and China through military sales. Um, China has helped uh, Saudi Arabia with its missile sector and perhaps with a budding uh, even sort of nuclear um, weapons capability. And that's, I think, a response to what they perceive as declining American engagement and reliability in the Middle East. But I, but I think it, it is still the case that for Saudi Arabia, for the UAE, for Qatar, uh, for all these Gulf states, we are still the partner of first choice for them if we are in the game. But their question lately has been, are we really still in the game? Even if we're in the Middle East physically, are our heads in the game, as it were, or is our attention really elsewhere, you know, forcing them to, to look to other great powers like Russia or China uh, for partnership? Let's turn to Europe. It's been a remarkable quick shift in Europe and the the posture toward toward Russia within Europe, and, and for obvious reasons, you know, they're, they're concerned about further invasions. What do you make of the particularly Germany's hard turn? They're going to have this huge new financial investment uh, in their military. First of all, is this this is broadly a desirable outcome, right? We've talked for a long time about how we wanted the Europeans to take on more responsibility for their own defense. So, is this you know is obviously we're not pleased about the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, but the the, the turn in, in Europe's posture, I think, am I right to say it's a positive one for the United States? It's absolutely positive. And I think it's a case where Vladimir Putin um, uh, uh, has accomplished what no American president was able to in, in getting the Germans to reconsider their approach to their own military spending uh, towards Russia and, and really to their national security strategy writ large. And it's a, a shift which appears to not only be taking place at the top echelons of government, but throughout society. I mean, there's, there's now polling data su- to suggest that you know, plenty of Germans actually support uh, this new investment in the military, the idea of spending more on defense, and the idea of insulating themselves somewhat against uh, Russia. And that's a major change for Germans. You know, I, I think that what has happened here is that the sort of delusions, frankly, that Germany had about Russia and about the ability of economics to sort of ensure peace, of economic relations to ensure peace, those delusions have been shattered, as it were, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and by Russia's behavior in Ukraine, just the brutality and the aggression that they're seeing really not so far away from their eastern border. And hopefully this is um, sustained, the German attitudes that is, not the, not the Russian invasion. Um, and hopefully it produces a strengthening of NATO through this increased defense spending and, and frankly, this increased seriousness about confronting threats in a, in a coherent manner. The reason I ask whether we have uncomplicatedly positive feelings about that is that obviously for decades, it was a cornerstone of our policy that we did not want Germany armed. We didn't want Japan armed following World War II. And then also, I think, you know, the U.S. has complained about the, the financial burden that we have disproportionately borne for the protection of the NATO countries. But that also gives us more control, right? We ha- we're the, the one country with the, with the really mighty military power, and that lets us decide how the military is going to be used. So is there, is there any reason to, to worry about basically the fragmenting of that power toward Europe from us? Look, I, I think the answer is basically no, Josh. You know, um, it's not that what you're saying isn't right, but I think it's just a matter of, of priorities. And, um, you know, we're, we're not, this is not the Cold War any longer. And so those concerns that we had about Germany rearming or Japan rearming, because remember, Japan has also um, been bolstering its own uh, self-defense forces in a way which was unthinkable um, just 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 
those concerns, whether that it would be threatening to Russia, obviously that uh, has fallen by the wayside given Putin's behavior now in Eastern Europe, um, or that it would somehow uh, create a, a sort of unhealthy security competition in Europe. I don't think that those are um, top of mind for the United States anymore. You, you have very strong security cooperation in Europe through NATO, very strong political and economic cooperation through the EU. And so I don't think we need to be hung up uh, on any concern that you'll suddenly see an outbreak of a uh, new sort of great power rivalry in Europe. Plus, you know, we, we still do, when we step back, want to free ourselves to focus on China and on the Indo-Pacific. And I think that means that you have to accept some of that loss of influence and control in other places. And you want to do that not just simply by pulling up stakes and abandoning your positions. You want to do that by handing control and handing influence to trusted partners. Uh, and that's what we've been looking to do in Europe for a long time. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's early days, but it looks like that's what's happening uh, in response to this Ukraine crisis. And so presumably this is part of a, a broader strategy to deter Russia that goes back, I mean, decades. The purpose of NATO is to say, you know, you can't invade any of these countries. We will all respond together militarily. It gives the Europeans a more credible threat about how they would respond. But one of the, you know, one of the big limiting factors on our response in Ukraine has obviously been we don't want to get into a direct military conflict with Russia. We're concerned about how that could escalate in a worst case scenario toward a nuclear exchange. Um, but also there are a lot of bad scenarios that fall short of a nuclear exchange. But suppose suppose Russia invaded Estonia or Latvia, um, which are members of NATO, where we have a treaty commitment to them that we don't have to Ukraine. Won't those concerns still apply on our end and also on the end of the of the Germans and, and the other powers in Europe? How do we you know, is, is that actually a credible threat that we will get into a war with Russia if they do those things? It's absolutely a credible concern. And, and there are scenarios here that are actually very, they're very difficult to game out and anticipate exactly how uh, they would play out. You know, so for example, a, a Russian invasion of, of the Baltics, clearly that would trigger NATO's Article 5 Mutual Defense Clause. Clearly the United States has been very clear, as have other NATO partners, uh, that we would come to the defense uh, of those countries. And that would risk uh, an all-out war with Russia. Um, but there are other scenarios which are arguably more complicated. What if Russia were to use low-yield nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine? which is, I think, improbable, but certainly not impossible. Um, what would the NATO reaction be to that, even though Ukraine is not a NATO partner country, uh, but the nuclear taboo would have been broken? So, so there's a lot of uncertainty here, frankly. Um, you know, could a conflict in the Baltics between NATO and Russia be kept below the nuclear threshold? Uh, clearly, we would hope so, um, but there'd be no guarantee. What I think most policymakers would agree on is that it's vital that um, we maintain the credibility uh, of our commitment to all these NATO partners so that we actually stave off these scenarios. The best way to invite these scenarios is, is frankly, to sow doubt in Putin's mind that we would come to the defense of the Baltics or that we would be willing, frankly, ultimately to match his escalation with escalation of our own. And we're in a particularly dangerous moment right now because it goes back, Josh, to what we were saying about the lack of off-ramps or uh, ladders for Putin. Um, it, it means that sort of his, his clearest responses so far to our actions have been threats of escalation rather than um, an effort at compromise or negotiation. And so we're in a very dangerous spot, but that makes our deterrence all the more important, I would argue. And that brings me back to the, to a question I asked near the beginning uh, about what the stable equilibrium is here, assuming that Putin remains in power in Russia. I mean, I think one thing that we've seen is some 
Russian disappointment about their military performance here. I guess one factor that we might rely on uh, to prevent more Russian aggression is basically that they, you know, it's already stretching their resources to do what they're doing in, in Ukraine. And that will, uh, does that causes them to trim their sails on the, on their further ambitions? Or does that create greater risk that they reach for a nuclear option because they, the conventional war does not work for them as well as they might have hoped? You know, I, I think it could be all of the above, Josh, frankly. I mean, I, I think that there's there's no doubt that Russian capabilities have been underwhelming. The European response has been um, greater probably than uh, anyone anticipated, probably even the Europeans themselves. And that, I think, will create a deterrent to further Russian adventurism outside of Ukraine. So the idea of Russia going beyond Ukraine, I think you have to look at their capabilities and say, how exactly would they manage that? But it also does create, I think, the risk or increase the risk of escalation, escalation perhaps to um, a a different class of of weaponry, and that could be tactical nuclear weapons, for example. And so I don't know that we can point to a stable equilibrium at this point. I mean, this is war, um, and war is inherently chaotic, unstable, uh, and uncertain. I, I think that if you listen to U.S. military officials, Western military officials in general, what they anticipate is that Russian behavior, Russian tactics in Ukraine will grow heavier handed, more brutal, um, that they'll bring greater force to bear against cities in Ukraine. And that probably means you have um, a sort of long lasting Russian presence in at least a significant part of Ukraine and therefore a long lasting sanctions regime against Russia. So you're sort of hunkering down uh, for a prolonged conflict, which has both military uh, economic and diplomatic aspects, which you know is not uh, entirely unlike the Cold War, and that is not encouraging. It's not um, in any way optimistic, but it is likely where we're headed. It's very alarming, in fact, uh, quite alarming. So, is there anything that the Biden administration ought to be doing right now, in light of that alarming diagnosis that you're giving there, um, that they're not currently doing? What advice would you give them? Well, look, uh, frankly, I think first of all, the Biden administration um, uh, should be commended for how they've responded so far. I, I think what is most notable about the Western response is that you have had U.S. leadership, but it hasn't been the U.S. Uh, alone. It hasn't been the U.S. shouldering, shouldering the burden alone. I, I, I think one question we have to ask ourselves is: Would this startling European response, and especially the startling German response, have been possible if the U.S. had said, "Look, guys, you're on your own." I don't think it would have been. And so so I think we have to give some credit to the Biden administration for playing that leadership role. But look, I, I think that what this all means is that we need to get much more serious about the resilience of our own societies. I don't know how much we will be able to do to stop Russia and Ukraine. We've already done a lot. Obviously, we're, we're careful about risking war with Russia as we should be. But Russia has other tools available to it, cyber tools. Obviously, we've seen our society is quite vulnerable to these fluctuations in the oil and gas markets. And so, you know, since the Cold War, I think we haven't focused so much on um, sort of societal resilience. Uh, And we haven't focused maybe as much as we should have on our military capabilities. And this is a criticism which is longstanding, this idea that we got involved in wars that um, were sort of low end uh, fighting low-end insurgencies and so forth, and we weren't as focused as perhaps we should have been on states like Russia and China encountering their capabilities. So we'll need, I think, to focus on those things in a more serious way. That will take, uh, I, I always, um, I'm, I'm reluctant to come back to this, but it will take bipartisanship uh, in Washington to do in terms of coming up with sensible budgets and spending money on the right things. Hopefully we'll see some more seriousness from our leaders in Washington. And frankly, we haven't seen that for some time, um, but that's really what we need. 
when you say societal resiliency, I assume that can come about in two well, at least two ways. One is if we change our energy policies in a way that simply make our economy less sensitive to disruptions like this in oil markets. And that can be domestic production. It can be some of the the foreign relations changes that we talked about here. Uh, it can be switches to re- renewables. Some of that is also societal attitudes, right? I mean, we, we have polling so far – Americans saying that they support the the sanctions on Russia, even if they're going to raise gas prices. I don't know how durable that's going to be. But, you know, presumably one aspect of that resiliency is how the public reacts when there are negative economic impacts in the United States from the actions that we're taking to counter Russia. I don't I don't know how you have a policy around changing that. But I assume is that something you're pointing to that basically it's you know, it's part of the responsibility here is on on the public to have the right attitude about this. You know, I, I would say, Josh, that I think actually American public attitudes are the least of our problems. I, I think that Americans generally, when um, they believe that there is a cause that is just and important, will support tough measures, will support even bearing some sacrifice. We've seen that time and time again. But there's no doubt that, look, the, the government can help um, if we take the right policies to, again, make ourselves more resilient in the face of the ups and downs of the energy market. And you're right. That includes, frankly, more domestic production, um, uh, which is something some folks don't want to hear, but it also includes, I think, more investment in other energy sources, which is something a different segment of folks don't want to hear. Um, so that's where the political compromises will have to come in. I think we can count on the American public to support just and sort of moral and right policies. I mean, maybe I maybe I sound naive when I say that, but if we want to sustain that support, I think it also requires the government to act competently uh, and to make sensible decisions. And that's, I think, where what we need to focus on right now. Let's leave it there for this week. Michael Singh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Josh. Michael Singh is Managing Director at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He also directs the Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation on Great Power Competition in the Middle East. And from 2005 to 2008, Michael served on President Bush's National Security Council. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me, and they get special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription makes it possible for us to put out this podcast and the newsletter. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo, as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.